All right, let's talk. March 4th, 2008. It was a Tuesday morning, and it was early. Earlier than I like to be out of bed. Um, first cup of coffee early in the morning. But this morning I was not getting out of bed, getting a cup of coffee. Instead, I was at the hospital. That was the day that I became a father. My little girl, Jillian Marie Anderson, was born. And up to that point, I'd, um, I'd never been through the process before, but we had done everything humanly possible to prepare. We had taken all the classes. I'm a good student, so I'd been through all the classes. I'd watched like the, the horrific 1980s birthing videos and, and learned about... <laughs> I, like, I'd practiced, like, doing the little diapers on the little doll, and um, I'd even learned about breastfeeding. Yes, women, if you have any questions. <laughs> That's one of my counseling skills. But, you know, if you've been there, you know that there's not a lot you can do to really prepare. And so the moment comes, and uh, it's all this excitement, Jenny's going to have the baby, and it's gross, and it's wonderful, and it's screaming, and and, and um, Jillian comes out, and I'm so excited, but immediately notice something's wrong. She's not crying. And I didn't know that much. I'd never been through it before, but I knew don't babies cry when they come out. And I looked in the nurse's eye, and I could tell something was wrong. And uh, they pushed a button or something. Jenny is all drugged up, completely out of it, has no idea what's going on, but I I know that something's not right. And suddenly, like, three and four other nurses run into the room. These special lights come on. They move the baby, Jillian, over to this little table. And and I don't know. I mean, for me, it felt like an hour, but it was probably 30 or 40 seconds later. I hear this terrific shriek. And, uh, and that was beautiful. And later, the doctor explained she just had some amniotic fluid, had to get it out, clear her passage, and she was able to breathe. And I was just shaking, though, like I'm a new father. I have this baby. <laughs> I can't control that. What do I do? Uh, later that night, um, they roll this little plexiglass. Do you guys, you know what I'm talking about? The little plexiglass that crib right next to it, and the baby's sleeping there. And, um, and I'm like, oh, no. Like, I didn't sleep all night. Like, watching, is she breathing? How about now? And at around 2 or 3 a.m. at one of the feedings, uh, she ate, and then, and then she coughed, and then she stopped breathing again. And Jenny and I are alone in the room at that point, and we're like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And I'm like, call the nurse, call the nurse, call the nurse! And she's pressing the button, and it's amazing. If you tell a nurse, my baby's not breathing, it's amazing how they were good. Um, just burst into the room, and like, we're not sure what to do. They're like, <laughs> <laughs> and seconds later, she's crying, and everything's good again. And then afterwards, the nurse left, and I'm sitting there. 24 hours before that, I was just a normal guy, right? And I'm sitting there. Sorry. I'm always emotional about my kids. And I'm holding this little girl in my hand. She fits in just the palm of my hand. And I never felt so helpless in my whole life. And I realized at that moment, like, I can do everything right. Like, I can buy the, the perfect safety features on everything, the perfect car and the perfect car seat, and I can cut all of her grapes in half and make sure she never goes out in the yard by herself. <laughs> I can, you know, have one of those baby leashes on her. 
<laughs> That's until her teenage years. <laughs> but that night, holding my little girl in my hands, I realized that no matter what I did, my little girl is not in my hands. She's in God's hands. I don't know about you, but that's scary for me. Like, that forced me to ask some tough questions. That Some stuff that, the things that I like to control in my life, the things that I like to think I have power over, the things that I think I can do and protect and ensure, I just realized I can't. I, I can't. And it made me ask, can I trust God? Like, you know, it's one thing to trust God for my eternity, whatever that means, right? But can I trust God right now? Like, it's one thing to trust God for my life, but can I trust God for my little girl? Can I trust God for my dreams, for my wife, for the things that I truly love, things that I love more than I love myself? And what if God's plan is to take away my little girl? Can I still trust him? What if God's plan is something different than my dreams or different than my plans? Like, I want to trust Him. But in those moments, when I feel helpless, I don't know, I feel weak. So I take these questions and and I do what you're supposed to do, right? I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to take them to the Bible. So I take him to the Bible, and, and I run into this guy named Elijah, and it doesn't feel very helpful. Like, in some ways, he looks like he's from another planet. He's the man who trusts God with everything. Like, he has faith, and a boy comes to life. He has faith, and fire comes down from heaven. He has faith, and it stops raining. He has faith, and it starts raining. He has faith, and his faith is like, it's courageous, and it's powerful, and it's intimate, and it's fearless. His name, we talked about this last week, literally means my God is Yahweh. And he seems to completely and always believe that. Something in that resonates with me, though. You know, when I'm helpless, I want to have that faith. I want to be there. Like, I want to pray those prayers. I want to trust God for everything. I want to trust God for my little girl. I want to trust God in life and death. I want to trust God and see, see fire come down from heaven. Just once, please. <laughs> so the question I want to ask today, question that I hope you're asking as well, is how do we have that faith? How does God grow that kind of faith in someone? Like how do we become a people who trust God intimately and courageously and fearlessly and when we're completely helpless we turn to him first and last and always how do we have faith like elijah the only answer we get has something to do with ravens and widows it's first kings chapter 17 if you have your bible go ahead and turn there we're going to be all over i'm going to skip skip around in a few passages because there's too much text today but I'm going to put the key passages up on the screen. So last week, 1 Kings cap- chapter 17. Last week we talked about uh, 1 Kings chapter 16 and the very first verse of this. And, and here's the scene. We found God's people had effectively lost all faith in God. They, had entirely, they hadn't entirely gotten rid of him, but they had stopped trusting him. Do, do you get this? They had stopped 
trusting God. Why? Because they trusted this guy, Baal, the god of money to provide for him. They trusted Asherah, the goddess of fertility, to give them kids and cows. And frankly, if they had Asherah and Baal, they didn't need Yahweh anymore. They didn't need this god who calls himself the I Am. He was a nice idea, but he had no practical significance in their lives. See, this guy right here, Baal was the god who brought the rain, which brought the crops, which brought the money. Baal is practical. Baal is the one who held back Mot, this, this god of death. He's the guy who, Mot was the one who brought the dry season and dried everything up and ended all the wealth. But, but Baal held all that back. Baal was practical. If Baal's happy, we're making money. If he's not happy, our crops die, our streams dry up, our animals and people grow thin, weak, food is scarce. Baal's a god that people needed. So, remember last week we talked about this library of Ugarit, uh, of Ugarit that they found? Well, in that library there are these ancient hymns to Baal that people would sing. And, and here's a line from one of the hymns. Like, during the dry season, all the people would sing this. Where is Baal the overcomer? Where is the prince, the lord of the earth? Like, this was the hymn of the people. They were longing for him. They were looking for him. Anytime there was a dry season, anytime there was a drought, anytime money started to run out, this is what you would sing. And this song was being sung among God's people. In fact, there's something interesting about this this line right here. Where is the prince? If you translate this from the Ugaritic, do you know how to pronounce this line right here? Where is the prince? It's Yezebel, Yezebel. And in English, we take that ye and make it a je, and we say Jezebel. Like this shows the extent to which God's people had allowed this into their lives. That the queen of God's people, Ahab's queen, was named Jezebel. Her, her very name is a proclamation how she looks for and longs for and wants everyone to worship Baal. That had gotten into God's people. God's people followed Jezebel. They followed this longing for money for control, for power. They worship the almighty Baal. And last week we saw that they even got to the point where they were sacrificing their children to improve their careers. Sacrificing their children to ensure their money. God finally says enough. And that's what we saw last week in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab the king, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Like you think that Baal provides the rain for you. You think that he holds back the forces of death. He says, well, let's see. What if God stops providing? What if I withdraw and no rains no rain means no crops, and no crops means no economy, and no economy means no food, and no food means no life. And this is the scene all across ancient Palestine. I want you to notice something. This, this is going to break a few of our categories here. God will let all of his people die before they will let him li- before he will let them live without trusting him. Let me say that again because I couldn't get through. Blah, blah. God will let all of his people die before he will let them live without trust in him. 
Now this, this is awkward for us. This is weird. Like, like we live in a world where, where what you believe about God is considered a personal preference. It's like, what kind of ice cream do you like? Now if someone said, I really prefer mint chocolate chip, you wouldn't be like, you must die! You like mint chocolate chip? No! And that's, that's how this comes across. Like, you won't trust me, therefore you have to die. So we have to ask a question here in order to translate this into our modern world. Why is God so serious about this? Like, why is he so concerned that his people trust in him alone? What is it about trusting God that's such a big deal? So let's take this out of the God context because we put God in a separate box in our world. So let's, um, let's just talk about trust. Trust is essential for relationships. Without trust, you can't have a relationship. Not a real one. So you wouldn't trust someone. If you don't trust someone, you're not going to let them cut your hair, right? You've got to trust that person. Like, if you don't trust a doctor, you're not going to let them operate on you. If you don't trust a friend, you're not going to share your secret with them. If you don't trust your spouse, your whole household is going to be at odds. If I don't trust someone on my staff, they're not going to be working at our church long. If you don't trust your neighbor... You're not going to share things with him. You're not going to invite them into your house. If you don't trust a babysitter, you're not going to give them your kids. Do you understand? Trust is essential for any relationship. It, it's true for, for spouses, for friends, for co-workers, and it's true for our relationship with God. It's by trusting God. Our relationship with God is built upon trust. It's by trusting God that we can experience what a relationship with him is like. It's through trusting him that we can get to know him. It's by trusting him that we can see who he really is, that we can learn to do life with him. And that, my friends, doing life with God, that's the whole reason, according to the Bible, that we were created. Why were we created? For relationship with God. Therefore, in God's logic, when we stop trusting in God, it defeats the very purpose of our existence. Do you understand? If you do not trust God with your life, you can't possibly know what life is like. In fact, the Bible is going to push this to the extreme. If you don't trust God with your life, if you don't trust God, if you don't build that relationship of trust, then the Bible is going to call you dead. Spiritual death. Separation from God. A cutting off. I've used this image before. It's like an astronaut who's up at the space station thinking, I'm so sick of being tied down to this space station all the time. So he gets out his knife and cuts the tether. Well, what does that create? That creates incredible freedom. I mean, he's never been so free. Followed by certain death. And that's what it is. I'm so sick of God always having me linked my whole life. Everything is God's, God's, God's. You cut yourself off but you're cutting yourself off from the only thing that's keeping you alive, from the very purpose of life. We can't possibly live without God. Without Him, we can't possibly know what life's supposed to be like or about. In fact, the Bible says, without Him, we're dead. So when the nation of Israel stops trusting in God, they are careening towards their ultimate destruction, towards death. The ultimate destination of separation from God is what the Bible calls hell. That's all it is. So the drought is actually a preventative step. 
I'm going to show you what happens when you cut yourself off from me. I want you to immediately experience the, the effects of cutting yourself off from me. If God removes his hand from you, this is what it is. It's death. And so while this drought sets in, God is going to give them and us an example of what it means to live by faith. To live by trusting God. And it starts in verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook. I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. And when he went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he ate and drank from the brook. God tells him to go east. So here's, here's our little map. He was in Samaria in this region, and it goes east to the brook Kareth. The word Kareth in Hebrew literally means to cut off or to cut down or to separate. And this is this area is, is um, technically the middle of nowhere. In fact, here's a picture of the traditional location of where it is. Supposedly it's in there. There's a brook that runs there when it's the rainy season. So God's going to send, God says, go there to the middle of nowhere, and I'm going to send these filthy scavenging birds to feed you in the morning and at night. That's my plan for you. So the question we have to ask is, is when, if, if this is really not about birds and about a brook, this is really a story about faith, we have to ask, what is God doing here? Like on, on the most superficial level, God said that he's going to hide him there. So we could say, well, I guess God's just, you know, if you go there, nobody's going to find you there. And, you know, as soon as Elijah had come to King Ahab and told him, God's shutting off the valve, there's no more rain, he rocketed to the number one spot in the most wanted list. We will read in the next chapter that after this, Ahab actually sends out his army to go out searching for all the prophets of God to kill them. All right? So it makes sense God's hiding him there, but that's kind of a superficial answer, and we're going to find this later on, that God really can hide Elijah in plain sight. That can't be the only reason he sends him there. In fact, the ancient rabbis, they sat around and they, they thought about this and they said, why would God take him to a place called Kareth? A place called cutting down, a place called separated, a place of, of hurt. That's the word there. Why would God take them there? And the rabbis suggest that, that maybe, maybe the name suggests what God was doing. That maybe Elijah needed to be cut down before he could become the man that God called him to. In fact, they would say it this way, that before God could make Elijah a person of great faith, he had to cut Elijah down to nothing. I want you to think about this. The rabbis, they might be onto something here. Kareth, the place of cutting, the place of separation, this, when Elijah's there for who knows how long, there Elijah's hated by the whole world. There he's isolated. There he has no way of providing for himself. There he has nothing to do but wait on God. There he has to utterly depend on God for everything. There he learns to sit and wait for God to provide for him morning and night, moment by moment, day by day. So the question is, how does Elijah become a great a person of great faith? And it seems to start here in Kareth. 
Like, how long do you have to stay in a place like this in order to, till, till you have great faith? It seems like too long. Verse 7, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. This verse just kills me. Can you imagine this? You are the prophet of God. You're doing everything he says. You're standing before kings and stuff. You're boldly following God. He leads you to the middle of nowhere where you have to be fed by these filthy birds morning and night. There's nothing to do. And then the brook dries up. This is God's wonderful plan for your life. I want to send you to the middle of nowhere where you will suffer indefinitely. And I'll tell you when you can leave. And by the way, the brook just dried up, so you're going to die soon. One of the uh, great 20th century authors, preachers named A.W. Tozer, writes this line, and I think it might speak to this. He says this, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a theme throughout the scriptures that the way of blessing is often dry and dark and painful. That the way to the promised land was through a desert. That the way to life is dying to self. That the way to God often feels like Kareth being cut off. There's a uh, classic, Christian classic, 1500s, a guy named St. John of the Cross wrote a book called Dark Night of the Soul that is kind of the classic Christian expression of this. He's a Spanish mystic. And I just want to read you this one quote of how a Christian thinks about this. He says this, God perceives the imperfections within us and because of his great love for us, this is motivated by love, urges us to grow up. His love is not content to leave us in our weakness. And for this reason, he takes us into a dark night. He weans us from all the pleasures by giving us dry times and inward darkness. In doing so, he is able to take away all these vices and create virtues within us. Through the dark night, Pride becomes humility, greed becomes simplicity, wrath becomes contentment, luxury becomes peace, gluttony becomes strength. No soul will ever grow deep in the spiritual life unless God works passively in that soul by means of the dark night. That, my friends, is Kareth. Kareth is obscurity when no one's applauding for you. Kareth is the death of our plans and our timeline and our dreams. Kareth is the place where your strengths and your abilities are useless. Kareth is temptation and disappointment in not knowing what tomorrow holds. Kareth is learning to do without. To do without others. To do without entertainment. To do without work or productivity. To do without any distractions. Just you, naked, alone, isolated before God. And Kareth is a terrible place where our faith grows deep. Elijah had to go to Kareth, and may I suggest to you that if we want deep faith, we probably have to go there too. You know, it's, I, I wish it was different, but I've never met someone who, like, their greatest spiritual growth in life was at the times when they won every game and everyone liked them and everything was up and to the right and they were uber successful and they were always making more money. Like, that's not how God grows us. It's in the dry times. It's in the terrible times. It's in loss. It's when you're alone. It's when you question everything. That's where God meets us.
I wish it wasn't true. Some of you are right there right now. And I just want to pause real quick and say, man, that stinks. But this might just be God's gift to you. Like it's the gift that nobody wants, but it's the gift that everybody needs. And God leaves Elijah there until he reaches the utter and complete end of himself, until there's no other options. He will literally die if he stays there. And then finally, after the brook dries up, we see verse 8. Then, after the brook dries up, after there's no, Elijah has no idea how he's going to survive there anymore, then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now, this... If you don't know your biblical geography, let, let me give you a quick lesson here. Here's, here's where the, you know, Kareth is. He just told him to go up here to Phoenicia. Now, let me remind you, if, if, if Kareth felt like a bad idea but just because it was an awful place, at least it made some sense. There in Kareth, no one would find him. But this, this advice is terrible. It's like the worst idea ever. Like it defies logic. Do you understand? God just told a man whose name means Elijah, my God is Yahweh, just told him to go into the country where there's an evil, bloodthirsty king named Athbal, I'm with Baal, who kills everyone who likes, uh, likes Yahweh. Do you understand? Hey, Elijah, over here. Like, he would stand out just a little bit in the land of Phoenicia. Like, it would be like dressing up like a Ku Klux Klan member and walking around West Philly. Like, it's not a good idea. It would be like showing up at an Eagles game with a Cowboys jersey. Like, you're taking, taking your life in your hands here. This is terrible. And not only that, not only did he tell him to go to the, the center, the heart of where the enemy is, he told him, here's how I'm going to provide for you. A widow. Now, I, I want you to know, in this culture, by definition, widows can't provide for anyone. They can't provide for themselves. They cannot produce wealth. They, they don't have anything. They don't own anything. They are provided for. They don't provide for people. Do you understand? Elijah, I know I've just made you suffer for endless months in the middle of nowhere. But now, here's my plan of salvation for you. I would like you to go to the heart of the enemy. Take your life in, into your own hands. And I'm going to send a widow to provide you. What are you going to do? So Elijah went. This is what makes Elijah stand out. He follows God when it doesn't make any sense. He goes to Zarephath. He finds the first widow that he runs into. He asks her for some bread. She explained that she's got only enough for one more meal. She was going to make it, feed it to her and her son, and then die. Elijah says, hey! Just do what you're doing, but give me some first. <laughs> and amazingly, she does. And he says, you know what? If you do this, I'm, I'm promising you, God's going to take care of us. Like that, that flour that you're using, that, that oil that you're using, it's never going to run out until it rains again. And she does. And she went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Now this is a miracle. The first miracle is that Elijah hasn't been killed yet. 
And the second miracle is this, that every day she goes to the jar, pulls some out, and there's always enough. Every day she takes the jug, pours some in, and somehow there's always enough. It never runs out. And let me remind you, the drought lasted three and a half years. So how many times do you think she had to go to that jar and pull some out before she realized, you know what, God's going to take care of me not just today, but probably tomorrow too. Like how many times does God have to provide us with the stuff that we need, our daily bread? How many times do we have to wake up and be able to breathe and look and see our family before we start recognizing God's hand behind it all? How many times do we, does God have to provide us with another paycheck and another plate of food and another meal and another day to play with our kids and another day to breathe before we can start, finally start seeing that our life is in His hands? Step by step, moment by moment, day by day, for years, Elijah and this widow have to trust God for one more day and one more day and one more day. And let me, let me point something out. That's all God gives. But that's all they needed. So here's the question. Can, can I trust God? Like, can, can I trust God if His plans aren't my plans? Like, if He has a different, if He has a terrible plan for my life, like, go someplace terrible, or, or go do this thing that defies logic, will I still trust Him? Can I trust Him when, when it seems impossible? Can I trust him when he only shows me enough for today? He only shows me the next step. They learned to trust day by day, but there was one more thing that God wanted them to see, one more thing that God wanted us to see. There was one thing that they were still clinging on to that God wanted them to see that this is in his hands too, and it's this. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally stopped breathing. Like, you can trust me for your daily bread, but can you trust me for your child? I want you to know that's a terrible, terrible question. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? And this mom's like, No! No, I can't trust your God for my son. I, I, I don't trust him. Like, is he evil? Is he against me? Like, I'm not going to trust God for this. And Elijah does this. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? I wait to hear this. Elijah doesn't get it. Nobody does. Nobody knows what God's doing here. Like, what are you doing, God? Like, I've been following you step by step for three and a half years. I've done everything you asked. I went to the middle of nowhere for you. I was fed by stinking ravens. It was terrible. I waited until the creek dried up. I followed you into the face of the enemy when it made no sense. I've done everything you've asked me, and now you're taking this widow's son. but I'm going to bring it back to you, God. I don't know how you're going to work this out, but I'm going to trust you in it. 
And then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down into the room, into the, uh, from the room into the house and he gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, catch this, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. What just happened? Like, why? Like, God, if you were just going to heal this boy anyways, why did you let him die in the first place? What are you doing? And I want you to see this here. Why does God bring them to this terrible place, to the complete end of everything? Why does God let the boy die in the first place? Because only then... Only when Elijah and the widow come to a complete end of themselves, only when they've lost everything, only when they are completely helpless. And they know it. Only then do they learn to trust God in everything. Only then does the widow trust Elijah's God. Only then does the world see that God alone has power over life and death, and only then is Elijah ready to become the man we know as Elijah. How do we get faith like that? How do we become a people who trust God intimately and powerfully and courageously and fear, fearlessly? How do we learn to trust God in everything? Well, the picture we get in First Kings chapter 17 is pretty horrible. It's three and a half years of isolation and pain, and being cut off. It's three and a half years of learning just to trust day by day by day. It's three and a half years of barely surviving. It's three and a half years of learning to trust God moment by moment. It's three and a half years of coming to a point where you're completely and utterly helpless. That's what God does to bring this faith in Elijah, to show us what true faith is. And I want you to notice, though, what Elijah does. That's what God does. God brings him through all that. Elijah's role is this. For three and a half years, every time God asks him to do something, he says, yes. I want you to practice with me. It's kind of fun to say. Can you say yes with me? Yes. So God says, will you do something you say? That wasn't so hard, was it? So God says, I want you to go to the middle of nowhere. You say, I want you to go and do something that makes absolutely no sense. You say, so God says, I want you to go talk to your neighbor and your friend about me. That person you're scared of. You say, oh, I, yeah, you believe it, don't you? God says, I want you to just stop what you're doing and go pray for that person because they desperately need someone to touch them and pray for them. And you say, yeah. God says, I want you to sell your house and I want you to move to the other side of the world because there are people there who don't know about me. God says, I want you to do something that absolutely makes no sense. I want you to go minister to Muslims where if they know you're a Christian, they'll probably kill you. God says, I want you to give up everything. God says, I want you to wreck your home life and adopt a handicapped child from another country. See, this thing about saying yes to God, but having great faith, is it's really, really hard. 
I would encourage you that if you want to know, and I don't pretend that all of us want to know. Some of us right now are sitting, sitting there thinking, I would like to have mediocre faith. Please, me. Just mediocre, middle of the road. Can I, can I, a D gets a degree. Can I pass, just passing faith? Like, I'll trust God for that and that. Let me encourage you to start small. Little things. Start small, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it defies logic, just do it. Take the step to trust God. And when God says something to you, when you read it in His Word, when He impresses it on your heart, when you hear it, someone shares it with you, and you know that that's God's Word for you, say yes. The thing is, is it's like a muscle. The more you say yes, the more it's going to grow. And here's the thing. The more you do, though, the more God's going to ask. If you're not challenged, it's because you're not listening. If you think Christianity is boring, <laughs> I'm going to close with this. Uh, if, Jamie, if, if you guys would come up. The band's going to come up. I'm going to give you just give us a couple moments to to think about this, because here's the deal. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what God's saying to you and your response to him. So while the band starts playing, I, I want to encourage you to take a few moments to think on these questions. What is God saying to me? What is he asking me to trust him with? What's holding me back? Has he taken me to places like Kareth in my life and I've held it against him? I thought he was trying to curse me when in fact he was trying to use that to grow me. Has he asked me to do things that make no sense? Just don't want to leave here before I, I make this one last point and it's this, that if you're sitting there right now and thinking, why in the world would I trust this God who might ask me to do crazy things? It's not because Elijah is such a great example that we do that. It's because of Jesus. We believe that we can do crazy things because God has done crazy things for us. That Jesus, the very Son of God, became a man. He came down to serve us. He showed us what life is like a life that is completely in trust with God. A life of faith. And I want you to just, if you would, imagine a life without fear. Imagine a life free from greed and lust and pride and racism and hatred and anxiety and worry. A life of courage, a life of love, a life of joy, and a life of sacrifice. That life, if you can picture it, is the life of Jesus Christ. He lived that life for us and he gave everything for us. But we don't know if we'll sacrifice our kids for him. God the Father sent his only son to die for us. Jesus hung on the cross dying. People mocked him. They literally said from the prophets, he trusted God. Let him deliver him if he delights in him. He trusted God. That's who Jesus is. A man who trusted God and God cut him off. Careth. He went through the darkest, most horrifying separation we can know. 
and he died. But then three days later, God raised him from the dead, proving that those who trust in him will be vindicated. Proving that trust in God's word is bigger even than death. God has power over life and death, and no one who trusts in him will be put to shame in the end. We don't follow a dead God. We follow Jesus Christ, God who gave everything for us. And he gave everything for us so we can now look at him when he says, come follow me. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. Give up everything so that you can know the freedom that he has. That's the offer that we have in Jesus Christ.